0: And you know, it occurred to me that it might be a good thing to talk about this morning. Why is the effect the way it is? Why do we do what we do? A lot of times I have people that come up and and mention or say to me, you know, the effect is something that is really different. I haven't experienced this before. Or I never thought I'd set foot in a church again. But this is something that I can do. What is the difference? Why is the difference? What is it that we are doing here that's different from other churches and why are we doing it? I think that's a valid question because it speaks to our, our mission, it speaks to our purpose, and hopefully it'll clarify why you are here or may choose to stay here longer. Everything that we do here at the effect really is a response to a felt need. I mean, if there isn't a need, then why do we do something? I wanted to, to read a little bit just to see if we can put this into Jesus' language. And if you take a look in your inserts or up on the screens at Mark 10, starting at verse 17. And I know I go back to this passage a lot, but it is a central passage. It is just so important to understand what is happening in this passage because it's happening to us too. And on a daily basis. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the young man said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. I know that we have talked about this several times, but each time we talk about it, I hope we're looking at it from a little different sort of angle, because there's so much here. This is the central question What must I do? To inherit eternal life? What must I do to come in contact with my higher power? What must I do to find even my basic purpose in life, to feel some sort of sense of fulfillment? Now, this young man, Jesus acknowledges, the the, the writer of Scripture says he felt a love for him. He, He acknowledges this man was the real deal. He wasn't pretending, he wasn't putting Jesus up for some sort of test, he wasn't trying to trap him as so many did as they addressed Jesus, he was the real deal. And when Jesus says, you know the commandments, keep them, when he says, I've been doing that, he means it. And Jesus knows that he means it. He has been doing everything right, everything that he possibly could within his religion, within his church, within his culture, his context, his worldview. He was doing everything that he could and yet he still felt a need. He still felt a lack. He knew that something was missing. Maybe he couldn't put it this way, but everything that he was about, that vehicle that he was in, had taken him as far as he could go, as far as it could go. And Jesus is saying, you need to get out of that vehicle, get into the next vehicle that can take you On the next leg of the journey but it involves something it involves letting go of everything that you think you have everything that you think you know and moving into a brand new place this is every single one of us this depicts every single one of us who gets to that point in life every one of us who say was raised in church was schooled by church that knows what the rules are, knows what the ritual is, knows what the belief system is, and has walked down that road as far as you can go. You're doing the do, you're doing it. And yet there is that sense that something is still missing. Eventually, either something happens or we just run out of steam and we realize something is not there. And this is who Jesus is talking to, which is really all of us All of you here, I hope that you're here because you have that felt need. You have that sense that there must be something more. Maybe you've succeeded in your life, succeeded in your business. You've raised your kids. And then you look around and say, hey, is there anything more? That driving purpose that I've had for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. What do I do with it now? Where does it go from here? This is that sense that Jesus is trying to answer. This is that sense of lack or something missing that the effect is trying to answer at the same time. Sometimes we feel that there is a sense of unfulfillment. We sense a purposelessness. Maybe there's a boredom. Life is not changing as we wish it would. Our relationships are still stressed. We have anxiety. We have grief. We have resentment. We have anger. Sometimes it's sort of a passive dissatisfaction and sometimes it's a real active pain that is driving us to look for something more, to ask that central question, what must I do? What do I do next? (laughs) What happens now? Now for me, personally, 25, 27, however many years ago it was, I was in the latter category. There was an active pain. My first marriage had broken up and I was in a place that I never thought I'd be and that drove me to look for something else and I, you know what? I really didn't care what form it took at that point I just wanted it to work I wanted the pain to stop I wanted the sense of guilt to be relieved and really I think that's the point that we all need to get I think that's key if we can get to the point where we don't any longer care What form this truth takes. Now we're ready. Now the pump is primed. Because as long as we're holding on to the things that we came in with, as long as we're still riding the horse we rode in with, if you want to use that metaphor, then we're only going to get, you like that metaphor? guy with the cowboy hat, go figure. As long as we're in that vehicle, we can't go any further. It's shelved out. It can't take us where we really want to go. A few days ago, someone asked me um, what the effect was all about. And uh, this is someone who is not a Christian. This is someone who is, is working through recovery. And so obviously there's a felt need there. There's something that they are looking for in recovery. And I heard myself say, you know, we talk about here at The Effect as we're trying to learn how to promote ourselves because we're not good at this. You know, we always talked about attraction and and not promotion. We've been trying to come up with a way of describing what we do, that elevator speech that we talk about sometimes. What, What can you say in two or three sentences, in 30 seconds, that describes the effect? And to this young man, I heard myself saying, the effect is a faith community that is based on this felt need, of course. But it's based on an intensely practical and non-religious reading of Jesus' message from a first century Hebrew point of view. And when you look at Jesus' message from that point of view, it changes everything. And it changes the focus of our spiritual journey, of our walk, from just a focus on church belief and practice to a contemplative way of life in our personal lives and that's very different and if that word contemplative is new to you it simply means the establishing of a presence and a mindfulness and the direct experience of God and God's presence in your life which will lead to a discovery of your own real identity and your meaning and your purpose so two parts there sort of a cause and an effect. The cause, of course, the felt need that we're all feeling that there's something must be more that then changes our response. We're willing to look at Jesus from a different perspective, a different place. Whatever we were taught about Jesus, about Christianity in the Western church, we're willing to sell all that, give it to the poor, and look at Jesus from a fresh point of view, from a first century Aramaic, the language that he spoke originally from that point of view, and that changes everything. And of course, the question that I also get asked when I go down this road, and uh, I was just asked again a week or two ago, this time by a Christian, well, what does it change? If you look at Jesus from a first century Aramaic point of view, what does it change? What actually goes on? And the first thing it does is it takes us from an intellectual point of view to an experiential point of view. We are so focused on what we understand intellectually, to understand a creed, to understand a theology. But Jesus isn't giving us any of that. Read the red letters of the Gospels and find out Jesus doesn't give us any sort of theology. What he gives us is a way to live life. So from an intellectual point of view, we go to an experiential point of view. We're focused on the legality of our faith, on the law, on behavior, on ethics, on morals. Jesus is focused on relationships, which makes our ethics and our morals situational. The law doesn't become an absolute instrument. The relationship becomes the absolute instrument. And the law serves the relationship. Our behavior serves the relationship. It's a different way of choosing. We're not just obeying anymore, we're actually letting our love for the other, for the beloved, guide our choices guide our decisions, and move us in directions that maybe we hadn't thought of before. Instead of a focus on there, then, the afterlife, as being the reward, as being the goal, Jesus focuses here and now, always here and now. His kingdom, as he defined it, is here and now. The Jews, as a people, were always focused here and now. If we just read the Gospels, the red letters again, from that point of view, that everything Jesus is talking about is right here, right now, how does that change the way that we interpret that? From what is called duality, our thinking in terms of separate compartments, good and evil, light and dark, matter and spirit, as being separate and in some sort of cosmic battle with each other, to move from that dual way of thinking to holistic way of thinking, where everything is one thing. And everything we see, no matter how diverse it appears, it really is just a manifestation of one thing. Those are four things that are fundamental in this shift in worldview as we look at Jesus from this first century Aramaic point of view. And it fundamentally changes our relationship with reality. It fundamentally changes this notion of God's love and how we relate to it. And all the big words whether they're good and evil, heaven and hell, sin, forgiveness, salvation, all those big words change in meaning when we take them back into a first century Aramaic point of view. And what they end up doing, in every instance that I have encountered, and I don't expect to find anything contradicting this, in every instance, the new definitions, the new way of looking at those words point us solely in the direction of God's absolute love. Wherever there seems to be a contradiction where it looks like God is withholding, God is punishing, God is turning his back, when you bring it back into this first century Hebrew point of view, it all becomes completely focused on God's love and it changes the nature of the message. The good news that Jesus talks about is no longer a passive or vicarious salvation, where we just sit under some sort of covering and God does all the work. The good news becomes this living, breathing participation, a partnership in the experience of salvation as a process of life, as a moving forward, a becoming, if you will, a becoming more and more grounded in presence, more and more identified with who we are starting to understand God really is. This absolute and consummate lover, it changes everything. It becomes this active, muscular participation in a new way of life that then reveals truth more and more to us. We don't start with the intellectual, theological truth and then prove it in the field. We just set out. And the truth comes out of the mist, resolves as we move forward further and further into this relationship, into this journey that we understand is being fueled and blown by God's breath and God's spirit. In other words, all that I'm saying to you, when we look at Jesus' message from this point of view, we realize that what he's talking about is a contemplative way of life. Everything that I just described to you embodies what Christians for 2,000 years have have understood and meant to say when they talked about a contemplative way of life. This call to directly experience God's presence, God's nature, and not just to learn about him, not to let somebody else perform sacraments that we vicariously get to enter into. No, it is a full extension, a full motion into that way of life. And in order to directly experience God, We have to shed our skin. We have to shed all the things that we think we know because it changes so much the way that we approach life. About 180 degrees. Jesus in the wilderness, that is that time in his life where he went out, just took away like sensory deprivation. You know those sensory deprivation chambers? Yeah, you go into the salt solution, it's at 98.6 degrees water and you shut the doors and you float in that thing and all the senses are turned off. Jesus goes out into the desert to shut off the noise, shut off all the, the effects of human community and just go out and get back down to grassroots to strip away all that stuff and find out Who this father really is. Find out who he really is. And if that sounds strange to you, that Jesus would have to do that because you were raised in a church that said Jesus was God and knew that he was God and had the full power of God from the moment that he was born, the scriptures don't tell us that. The scriptures tell us that he had to grow in wisdom and stature. The scriptures show him learning and becoming more and more aware of who he was. And the time in the wilderness was when he had to face down all of the human compulsions that distract us and take us off the beam. He is the model for us. He's showing us how it's done and it's done in this contemplative way to strip away any beliefs, any behavioral or emotional patterns, false identities, to sell all that we have that blocks this view of ultimate reality that Jesus calls his father, his father in heaven. I wanted to read to you a little bit from Richard Rohr, he kind of puts his finger on a lot of what this contemplative way is. He writes, contemplation is an entirely new way of knowing the world that has the power to move us beyond mere ideology and dualistic thinking. Mature religion will always lead us to some form of prayer or meditation or contemplation to balance out our daily calculating mind. That mind that we work with all the time—that's always you, you need a counterbalance, you need a ballast for that. Now you got to use your daily calculating mind, right? You got to be able to get from point to B. You got to go to work. You got to plan. You got to do all that stuff. But if that's all you ever do, like planes circling O'Hare and never come in for a landing, then we are out of whack. So the contemplative side, the prayerful side, the meditation, the mindfulness—that balances it out, allows us to become true dual citizens of the world in which we live bilingual able to communicate on both sides of the equation and believe me he says this is major surgery and you must practice it for years to begin to rewire your egocentric responses he's talking about all of the compulsive behaviors jesus went through three tests in the in the wilderness you know, To turn stones into bread, to bow down before Satan and get the power over all of the kingdoms of the earth and to throw himself off the temple and be borne up by angels in front of the court of all the people. And Henry Nouwen beautifully says, this is the threeness, which is a perfect number in, in Hebrew thinking, that shows us the full extent of all of our compulsive drives as human beings. The need to be relevant. What's more relevant than making food out of stones, to be relevant in someone's life, to be powerful and to be spectacular. Think about it, how those drives really encompass so much, if not everything that we do and all of our drives. Jesus had to face those down. And if you think that it was just 40 days, 40 is another symbolic number that just means a time of trial and testing into rebirth. And since there are 18 unaccounted for years in Jesus' life, It could have been a long time, which is what he's saying. It's major surgery. You must practice it for years to begin to rewire your egocentric responses. Contemplation is work. So much so that most people give up after their first futile attempts. But the goal of contemplation is not success. Okay, that's a little weird. The goal of contemplation is not success, only the continuing practice itself. See, as soon as you focus on an outcome, as soon as you focus on something out there other than here, then you've already lost before you began. The contemplative practice is to let go of all of that future tripping, we sometimes call it, to let go of all the other thoughts, all the other drives that keep us from being completely present right here and right now. So the goal of contemplation is not success outcome, it's the continuing practice itself, to keep showing up. The only people who pray well are those who keep praying. In fact, the continued reconnecting is the praying, not occasional consolations, not feeling good about what you did. It's just continuing to show up. Take that as an absolute. Contemplation is meeting or experiencing as much reality as you can handle in its most simple and immediate form, without filters, judgments, or commentaries. Sound childlike? The little children you know who can do that just innately? It's so hard for us as adults to keep doing the same thing. The ego doesn't trust this way of seeing, which is why it's so rare. Jesus said a narrow gate and a hard road is what leads to life, and only few find it. He's not talking about heaven and hell here. He's talking about this process, the willingness to let go of what you need to let go of to be able to experience what really is. The only way you can contemplate is by recognizing, that is, becoming aware of, your own compulsive mental grids, your practice way of judging, critiquing, blocking, and computing everything. When your judgmental mind and all its commentaries are placed aside, God finally has a chance to get through to you because your pettiness and self-protective filters are at least out of the way. Then truth stands revealed on its own. Often we've used the uh, image of uh, Michelangelo getting ready to carve something out of a block of stone, and he is said to have been able to envision the final sculpture standing inside the stone as if it were frozen in a block of ice. And once he had it completely visualized, the only thing he had left to do was remove everything that was not the horse or the statue or whatever. We are all standing inside of ourselves. That person that we want to know, that fulfilling purpose that we want to achieve is already here. That's what Jesus kept saying. At Mark 1.15, it's in your it's in bulletins if you want to take a look. He says that the waiting is over. The kingdom is here. In the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But see, once again, if we take a look at that from a Western point of view, it doesn't mean the same thing if we take a look at it from a Hebrew point of view. Eugene Peterson in the message gets closer. He says, Time's up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the message. That's not bad. Because the word that is translated at hand means really already arrived. The waiting is over. The kingdom has already arrived. It's right here. It's in your midst. It's within. It's among. Time's up. What are you waiting for? What are you looking for? It's already here. And all you have to do is repent, which doesn't mean feel sorry about something, it means to change directions, to change your response. To this felt need that you have, and go in a new direction, and believe the message. Really, when you get right down to it, it's trust the message. And not just the message, but the messenger. Jesus is the way, is the truth, is the life. Jesus is the good news. He is portraying this nature of his Father that he is trying to also convey to us. Trust the messenger. Trust the message. Change your direction and get on the way and find out that what you are actually doing is subtracting, chipping away all the stuff that is not you. It's just the fears and the accumulation of all the compulsive drives that you have put in and on yourself in order to survive whatever it is that you've experienced in life. This is again the contemplative way, what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Back to Richard Rohr. In general, the more perfectionistic, legalistic, and ritualistic you are, the less contemplative you are, which means you're still stuck in defense mode, right? You're not admitting your vulnerability. You're not admitting your dependence. You're not admitting your powerlessness. That is vital to be able to find out who we really are, to let this stuff go. For the contemplative, God becomes more, and this is great, for the contemplative, God becomes more a verb than a noun, more a process than a conclusion, more an experience than a dogma, more a personal relationship than an idea. Getting back to the difference between the intellect and the experience, the legality and the relationship. Few of us have unpackaged this brilliant notion in the Christian world. Most of us have lived our whole lives with a steady stream of consciousness, with a continual flow of ideas, images, and feelings. And at every moment of our lives, we cling to these thoughts and sensations, so much so that I don't have the idea, the idea has me. I don't have the feeling, the feeling has me. We have to discover who this I really is. The one who has these feelings always... And it has these feelings, always passing feelings and thoughts. I didn't read that very well. Let me try that again. We have to discover who this I really is. The one who has these always passing feelings and thoughts. Who am I behind my thoughts and feelings? You're never going to find out until you become willing to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and follow. I'm sure that most people in the Western world have never met the person they really are. We have to find a way to get beyond our self-image and our ideas about who we are. We have to discover the face that we already had before we were born, who we were in God all along, before we ever did anything right or wrong. This is the first goal of contemplation. This I is capable of union with God. The core task of all good spirituality is to teach us to cooperate with what God already wants to do and has already begun to do through us. In fact, nothing good or life-giving would ever enter our minds unless in the the previous moment God had already moved within us. We are always and forever merely seconding the motion. God makes the first motion. How do I like to end every prayer? From 1 John 4.19, We love, Because God first loved us. Same idea. We don't do anything, as Jesus said, I don't do anything of my own initiative. I only do what the Father does through me. It's going to be the same with us. How in the world could it be anything else? God loves, now we can love in return. We exist because God loves. We breathe because God loves. It's the only way anything happens is because it's already been moved forward. The impetus came from that direction. And so, in other words, what contemplation really is, is engaging in the process of waking up. Most of us are sleepwalking through life. We're not really aware of, of where we are, who we're with, or the forces that are driving us to continue in these, these deeply rutted patterns of compulsion and dysfunction. Why do we do the things we do? Paul asked that question Why do I keep doing these things? Because it takes years of unwiring of the contemplative path to finally become aware enough in the moment that you can make a different choice. And so Jesus called to us. His way is this way of continuing to shed our skins, continuing to let go of the things that are keeping us mired, keeping us enslaved in these patterns. So, contemplative way is becoming aware, becoming alert, waking up, seeing ourselves in action and able to choose something different, which is a major theme of Jesus. Take a look back in your inserts again or up on the screen. I just want to read a few of these from the Gospels. Matthew 24, starting in verse 42. Therefore be on the alert, for you don't know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. Mark 13, take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigned to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Luke 12, Luke 21, But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And now Luke 12. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. And truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. And I know I this know. Is, this is all couched in terms that sound like they're separated in time, but really the, the imagery here and the understanding here is this is all happening simultaneously. When we are aware, when we are on the alert, all of these things are happening. We are reclining at the table with God. We're not waiting for the invitation. It's happening right here, right now. And this last one at Luke 12, Jesus is bringing in and bringing to mind Imagery that is also a major theme throughout the entire Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's the same thing. And this is the theme of the Jewish wedding feast. This image here of keeping the lamb slit and waiting for the master, the groom to return is alluding to the Jewish tradition of how that they were married to each other. And of course, they all understood this immediately. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. But we not understanding the tradition behind that is never explained or expressed in the scripture itself. We don't get the richness of what Jesus is talking about. And we don't get how we are supposed to live day to day as they would have understood because they know the tradition. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jewish weddings. All right, Jewish weddings took on the form of two parts. There was a kedushan and there was a Nisuin. The kedushan was the betrothal. The Nisuin was the actual wedding ceremony itself. And they were separated in time, sometimes as much as one to two years. In Jewish culture, especially ancient Jewish culture, weddings were arranged by the parents, usually by the fathers. And often it was for political reasons or for, you know, putting clans together or whatever. Often bride and groom didn't meet each other until the day of their betrothal. And on the day of their betrothal, a Jewish betrothal, the Kedushin was as binding as the wedding ceremony. So once they were betrothed, you you would need a certificate of divorce to break that. And so you're meeting on the same day, you're getting basically married on the same day. Jewish households stayed intact. The sons continued to live with the fathers. They would just build on what they called... Hadars, which were um, mansions or, or compartments, or you, we may, maybe we would say apartments, onto the father's estate. And so you never lost a son, but you always gained daughters-in-law. And so when a man, a groom, was betrothed to his bride, he would leave his father's house and go to the house of the father of the bride. And he would take with himself certain things. First of all, his groomsmen and his entourage, but he would also take a contract, and the word for uh, the Hebrew word for groom or for husband is chatan, which means one who enters into a contract. And he would bring the ketubah, which was this written contract. It's, it's interesting, in, in uh, Jewish weddings today, the ketubah are, are beautifully prepared and they're usually framed and hung on the wall of the, of the couple. They still have this contract. And it was the groom's promises to the bride uh, for the marriage. And if she accepted that, then she would drink the kedushin, which was the wine, the cup. And they would drink from the same cup that would signify the sealing of this contract. So he would bring the contract itself, the ketuba. He would bring the wine and he would also bring the Mohar. And the Mohar was the dowry. This was the compensation that he would pay to the father of the bride for the loss of her labor within the household is the way that worked. And so you had these three things that he was bringing if after she read the contract, the ketubah, and she agreed and she drank the wine with him, then he would leave her with a tenayim. That was the promise to return. And then he would leave. You know, That was it. They had the ceremony, have a meal, and he would leave and he'd go back to his father's house to build the hadar, to build the chuppah, which would be the, the apartment that they were going to live in and the tent under which they would have the final wedding ceremony and consummate the marriage. In preparation for a seven-day feast, imagine your wedding's going on for seven days. Everybody over your house for seven days, eating and drinking. Seems like that would get old, but they loved it. When you think about it, you know they, there was a lot of entertainment in first-century Judea. Weddings were the big deal. Let's have a wedding. We get seven days of partying, you know. And so he was off building the, his his apartment for his bride, for his family, and literally nobody knew when he was coming back to claim his bride, except the father of the house. The groom didn't know because it was only when the father said, yes, you built this to my specs, everything is cool, now you can go claim your bride. And of course the bride doesn't know, right? So if you're really thinking, double thinking, that some of you who know scripture and some of Jesus' words are starting to make a lot of sense. In my house there are many mansions, Hadar, right? Right? You know, I don't know when I'm coming back. Only my father in heaven knows. There's a lot of spiritual imagery that has overlaid on this real tradition that, of course, they were completely familiar with. Now, what's happening on the bride's side? Yeah. The Hebrew word for bride is kala, which literally means the completed one or the enclosed one. She is the one on the receiving end of all of this. If she accepts the ketubah, if she drinks the kedush, Then he leaves with giving her a promise to return. And so she's left to take first the mikvah, which is a purifying bath that was signifying that she is still a virgin and she's ready to enter into marriage and she is cleaning herself and preparing to be able to receive her husband. Now remember, these were girls that were probably only 12 or 13 years old. That's when girls were married. So they're just getting into adolescence. Girls before that age would not have a veil. Their hair could be flowing. But as soon as they take the mikvah and they are betrothed, they take the veil. And so now she's veiled and she is learning everything that she needs to learn from her mother or her sisters and her family about being able to be the head of her own household. So she's learning from them. She's also waiting expectantly for her husband to return, but she has no idea when that's going to be. It could be a year. It could be two years. And so her attention is split between what her life is going to be and the changes that will bring and the excitement about having her own family and also the bittersweetness of realizing that she's going to lose everything that she's ever known for as long as she's been alive. And if the husband, if the groom lives far enough away, she either may never see her family again or may only see them at intervals. And so it's a real interesting kind of middle ground that the bride, the kala, is living in during this period of waiting. But she's learning how to be a wife, how to do what she needs to do. When the groom finally does come back, it's like a great game. He comes at night with all his groomsmen. They get to the edge of the village, the edge of town, and they blow a ram's horn called a shafar, or they gave great shouts, and they let the entire village know that they're there. And, of course, everybody knows what's going on. They're all waiting for it. So the, 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 <laughs> the word quickly spreads. When it gets to the bride's house, all her bridesmaids grab their lamps. They run out. They light them, and they light the way all the way through the streets back to the bride's home, the home of the father. Now you talk about those ten virgins, right? The five foolish and the five wise. Some had lamps, some didn't. And all these things are starting to to come into focus here. And so the way is lit, the groom comes, the father ceremonially turns his head as if not to see what's going on. And the groom comes in and they snatch the bride literally out out of her bedroom, out of her house. And now you should have thoughts of the rapture, the snatching that's going on. You know, all of these images are coded into our our Bible. The shout, the shofar, it's all there even in Revelation, Ezekiel, Daniel. Think about it. And then they raise her up on the Nisuin, which is the home taking. It's a raised platform with a, with a seat or, or a couch on it, and they carry her back. And even today, in Jewish weddings, they stand under a, a ceremonial chuppah, and then they raise up the bride afterwards, and they carry her around the room several times. This signifies the home-taking, and they take her back, and then they have another ceremony, and the marriage is consummated, seven days of parting, and then you're off. You're actually living your life. Now, In the Old Testament, Israel was always understood to be the bride of Yahweh. In the New Testament, the church is always understood to be the bride of Christ. And so they are putting us in that role. All of us are in that role of the bride who is living literally between two worlds. The Jews understood us all to be living between heaven and earth. And that our goal here was to merge the two, to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. How do you do that? How do you merge these two very different worlds? The bride had to live in that one foot in and one foot out with a joyful expectation of what was going to come and this new life that was going to be lived, but also sucking every moment out of every relationship and everything that she was doing at home, knowing that the time was growing short. But to pull both of these together, to hold them both in one embrace, is exactly what Jesus is talking about in kingdom living. It's not an either or. It's not a focus on the there then at the expense of the here now. It's a bringing the two together to finding out how it is that we live when we are equally joyful about what is and what is yet to come. To bring those two together and live in that kind of presence that kind of awareness, that kind of alertness. So why is the effect the way it is? Why do we preach and teach and and do the things that we do? Because there are those of us who are waking up. There are those of us who are trying to wake up, who are feeling this need, the sense of something more. And these people need guides. They need help to be able to do the things that they need to do. They need people to be able to tell them that they have permission to see Jesus from a radically different perspective. They have permission to think outside the box. They have permission to look beyond the things that they think they already know. That no damage, no harm is going to come from that. That is the way of living life that we must live if we're going to ever be able to continue to approach a God who defies description. A God who has always more to show us, another corner to turn, another radical surprise to give us. How are we ever going to approach a God like that unless we're willing and have permission to constantly shed our skin, to let go? People who are waking up need encouragement to sell everything and to continue to do that on a regular basis. Give it to the poor and follow. To just let go of false identities false ideas even those you suspect may be holding you back that needs encouragement and people alongside and then finally yeah we need companions we need people who are going to walk this path with us as we set out and Jesus if you think about it did exactly that for his friends that's what he did he gave them permission to think against the religious authorities, to think outside of everything that they had been taught and even the traditions of their faith going back centuries or even millennia. Jesus gave them permission to think differently, to see their father differently, to get everything out of the way. He encouraged them to drop what they had. The fishermen dropped their nets. Everybody dropped what they had and they followed, unencumbered. And then Jesus walked with them. He didn't just send them out. He did everything along with them as they were moving. This is what we need to do for each other. This is what we're trying to do here at The Effect. Because if you think about it, we're all breathless brides, aren't we? Breathless brides living on a promise of a return. Living for that day. But if we can do that and anticipate everything that's coming, but miss nothing at the same time of what's here and now, then, and only then, can we actually begin to trust the promise that God has given us of a life that we're always going to have in Him that begins right here and right now. And then, and only then, can we say we're really on the way of Jesus to His Father. The only way that there is to that Father, that life, that reality. Let's pray. Father, there's always so much to be grateful for. This beautiful imagery help us to, I suppose, understand it better, but really to place ourselves in those sandals. Place ourselves in that place. Begin to see ourselves living our lives each moment and each day with that promise, but with that presence at the same time. To be able to start to hold the paradox in one embrace, to hold two worlds in one embrace, and to get a lot of joy out of both to let the anticipation fuel an excitement, but never taking our eyes off those who are traveling with us. Help us to do that, Father, more and more. Help us to see that that's what we really need to do and want to do, that that's the only vehicle that will take us where we really want to go. And thank you for everything that you give us along the way, every encouragement, every person in our path who takes us to the next level. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us back and never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.